And it was interesting because Dell is preaching on the same two passages as we have this morning, which means we're following the same lectionary. So, so Dell is a lectionary preacher, which is great. And uh, the theme that kind of runs through is this idea of David. And David actually was homeless for a season. He was on the run. He was living in caves. Um, and Jesus was homeless. And Mary and Joseph were homeless in the sense when they arrived at Bethlehem and really homeless. Like there was no homes that they could stay in. So they had to stay in a barn, you know. Um, so it was kind of this beautiful sort of correlation. And we, we put a little sticker on some mirrors. Everybody got a mirror in their bag. And that was a quotation from 1 Samuel uh, where David is chosen over his much taller and bigger and more impressive brothers. And the passage is that uh, God does not look at people the way, at you the way people look at you, but God looks at the heart. And we find in the scriptures that David was a man after God's own heart. And actually that's going to figure into our passage a little bit today too as to why, what was so special about David that God would make such a promise to him. Uh, so we'll get to all that, but I, it's kind of an interesting dovetailing of messages and themes this morning, even going to Dell's ministry this morning. So God is good. God is in this uh, today in our passages, in our readings, our hymns, our gathering. Uh, so why don't you, uh, if you would, turn to page 301 in your Sanctuary Bible. Our reading is uh, first, or pardon me, 2 Samuel 7. And always be suspicious when there's a gap in the reading there. So we're just going to read all the way through because the Bible is the Bible. We can live with it even if it has some, some difficult things in it. Uh, just a word of introduction about this passage. This is a really important text in the Old Testament as far as the New Testament is concerned for at least two reasons. One is it sets up a prophecy about the lineage of David that God is going to be faithful to this lineage or this house or dynasty of David forever. And we understand now in light of the New Testament that Jesus is the fulfillment of this promise because as we see in our first reading, Joseph is of the house and lineage of David. And even though Joseph wasn't Jesus' biological father, it's a good bet that Mary was a close relative of Joseph's. And so Mary was probably also in the lineage, the biological lineage of David. But we're all in the spiritual lineage of David because of, of the promise that, that is made in this passage is realized, actualized in Jesus Christ. The other is that in this passage you'll see there's this open-ended, unconditional promise that God makes, which is kind of unusual for the Old Testament. Often the promises are a little conditional in the Old Testament. I will continue to bless you as long as you follow me. This promise is striking in its unconditional nature. It is that you may falter and fail and mess up, but my promise is going to continue forever no matter what you do. And this is how we understand Christ. This is how we understand the gospel. And so this passage is, uh, in, in the Old Testament is very important to the New Testament. It's very important in particular to Protestants and are what we call the doctrine of justification by faith alone, not by any works of the law that we may keep. Um, the other thing I want you to pay attention to is there's a word house that happens several times, but it's translated differently in different ways. And there's a play on words in this passage. It's kind of interesting that here we have a prophetic passage that also has some word play in it, a literary device. The Hebrew word is bayit. And uh, Hebrew being a much more compact and smaller language than ours, 
words carry different meanings depending on the contact, context. And this word, bayit, is used several times, but is translated different ways depending on the context. The word bayit means house, but it could also mean temple, and it could also mean dynasty or lineage. So if you think of like the house of Windsor in England, right? That's not just a house, a physical house. It's it's the king and the queen and all their descendants or all their ancestors way back into time. Does everybody understand that? So this word bayit functions in at least three ways. One is temple, one is actual house, a building that you live in, and third, at least, as a dynasty or a family or a sort of progeny generations from there on. That same word is used, but it has three different meanings. So there's, what I like is that God is a little playful sometimes when he writes, uh, when he inspires scripture, he uses wordplay. Why does he do that? Because it delights him, because it makes it more memorable, because it, it makes it more interesting. Um, so the word house is kind of significant. With that introduction, let's go ahead and look at our reading now. Uh, starting at verse 1, page 301. And we're talking about uh, David. And one other uh, thing of introduction here is that David has now finally defeated most of his, almost all of his enemies. There's a little bit of mop-up left to do uh, with some of Saul's descendants, but David is king now, and uh, he's done a good job of defeating the Philistines, and they've reclaimed the Ark of the Covenant that had gone missing for a while. So sort of everything is kind of going David's way after being homeless and on the run and having spears thrown at him by Saul and writing some really deep and dark psalms. He's finally sitting in his palace. He can rest. Uh, he's like finally gets a chance to take a breath and he thinks to himself, the ark is just still sort of roaming around the countryside in a tent, the tabernacle. It doesn't have a nice house like I have. So that's kind of the background of this, is that David, David gets a moment to put his feet up and take a deep breath and rest. And then he starts thinking, and this is the result of what he's thinking. Verse 1. After the king was settled in his palace, or bait, his house, after the king was settled in his house and the Lord had given rest from all his enemies around him, he said to Nathan the prophet, here I am living in a bait, a palace of cedar, while the ark of God remains in a tent. So Nathan replied to the king, Whatever you have in mind, go ahead and do it, for the Lord is with you. But that night the word of the Lord came to Nathan, saying, Go and tell my servant David, this is what the Lord says. Are you the one to build me a house to dwell in? I have not dwelt in a house from the day I brought the Israelites up out of Egypt to this day. I have been moving from place to place with a tent as my dwelling. Wherever I have moved with all the Israelites, did I ever say to any of their rulers whom I commanded to shepherd my people Israel, why have you not built me a house of cedar or a temple? Now then, tell my servant David, this is what the Lord Almighty says. I took you from the pasture and from following the flock to be ruler over my people Israel. I have been with you wherever you have gone, and I have cut off all your enemies from before you. Now I will make your name great, like the names of the greatest men of the earth. And I will provide a place for my people Israel and will plant them so that they can have a house of their own, a home of their own, and no longer be disturbed 
Wicked people will not oppress them anymore as they did at the beginning and have done ever since the time I appointed leaders over my people Israel. I will also give you rest from all your enemies. The Lord declares to you that the Lord himself will establish a bayit, a house, a dynasty for you. When your days are over and you rest with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring to succeed you, who will come from your own body, and I will establish his kingdom. He is the one who will build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be his father, and he will be my son. When he does wrong, I will punish him with the rod of men, with floggings inflicted by men. But my love will never be taken away from him, as I took it away from Saul, whom I removed from before you. Your house and your kingdom will endure forever before me. Your throne will be established forever. Nathan reported to David all the words of this entire revelation. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for your word. And we ask that you would add your blessing to it in Jesus' name. Amen. I'd like us to um, maybe go back to the text a little bit. There's a lot here. A lot of interesting stuff. Fascinating stuff. The use of this word over and over again, but with different meanings. This idea that David sits down and actually has a moment to himself to decide what he wants to do. And he decides in his mind that he thinks it would be right for him to build a temple for the Lord. Now, there could have been a little bit of peer pressure going on. Uh, that was the sort of things that rulers of the ancient Near East did. Once they established themselves and built themselves the palace and built a nice city with a moat around it and tall walls, the next thing they would do is build a temple. And that temple, to whatever god it was, was really a reflection of their own power. Does that make sense? If I've got enough wealth, if I've got enough power, if I've got enough land, if I've got enough resources, I can plow them into building this huge shrine to my God. But it's funny how this shrine to my God ends up looking a lot like sort of a monument to my own power, my own will. And that's actually the problem with temple building. That's the problem even with having kings. And, and this was the problem that God had with his people. He didn't really want them to have a king. He, he relented when it came time to have a king, and so they, they chose Saul. Um, but Saul really wasn't a man after God's own heart. Well, look at that. Not like David was. And so I think because David was a man after God's own heart, God said to him, no, you are not to be the one that will build me a temple. I've been living here on top of the Ark of the Covenant on that, that sort of little throne I've been going around. I've been with my people. I've been with them. I've been going wherever they go. I've been, uh, haven't been tied down to one place. I don't really want to be tied down to one place. I want to be where my people are. I want to be in this tent. So God, God, I don't think, is all that interested in the temple building enterprise. He, he doesn't really want to be tied down. Now, he, he also, in this case, he relents to it. When Solomon builds him a temple, the ark is moved into it, uh, God... God accepts that house, but I, I even think that that temple was more a monument to Solomon and his wealth than it really was to God. And we see that in Solomon's life. Solomon had a lot of conflicted problems in his worship of God, mostly because he was worshiping several other gods at the same time, importing gods from all the wives and concubines that he brought from foreign countries. 
So we have this uh, story, and a few things I want to note for you. One is, David has this wonderful relationship with the prophet Nathan, which is going to come in import, uh, be an important relationship later on when David makes a big mistake with Bathsheba. Nathan's the only person in the palace who can actually come to him and tell him what's what. But he tells the prophet Nathan, I think I need to build God a temple. And an interest, another interesting part of this text is that Nathan says, God is with you. You should just do whatever you think is right. Uh, that, in, in essence, he's saying, yeah, go ahead. If you think you should build God a temple, go ahead and build God a temple. You, you're probably right. Um, so even Nathan is wrong because that night, Nathan has a dream. And God says, not so fast. No, nope, not so fast. Now, why is that? Isn't that interesting? That the prophet of God gives a false utterance at the first chance he gets. He tells David, God must be with us. Go ahead and do it. But then he gets a dream and God says, no, don't do it. And so then Nathan, has, of course, has to go back to David and say, you're not the one to build me a house. Somebody else is. But yet it becomes this opportunity for this promise to be revealed to him. So I find that interesting. I find that interesting. I'm not sure what I would make too much of it. I think maybe we could take that home with us. Is Sometimes we think we know what the right thing to do is, but if you sleep on it, <laughs> God may work on you somehow in your dreams, somehow in what you're thinking. Uh, the counsel of other people may come to you and, and they'll say, wait for another generation to do. But then we get into this um, sort of beautiful and interesting promise that God makes to David. Uh, you don't need to build me a house. I don't want a house. I'm living in a tent. I'm with the people. I'm moving about with them. I like it that way. What I'm more interested besides that house, the temple, I don't, I'm more interested in the house, which is the lineage, the dynasty that I'm going to build starting with you. Because you're a special person, David. There's something special about you that I'm going to plow my promise into, my unconditional promise to, and I'm never going to take it away. And um, even at the end, we see here... Uh, Verse 15, if you look at this, and, and another problematic part of our reading today, my love will never be taken away from him, from David, as I took it away from Saul, whom I removed before you. I think when I was younger, I, I kind of looked at the person Saul and I felt a little sympathy for him. Did anyone ever have that? Were you kind of like, what? Did they kind of pull the rug out from under Saul? I mean, did, did anybody? I, Karen's nodding. Yeah, like he seemed like, a simp he seemed like a nice guy, kind of a quiet guy. He didn't really want to be king. He had a lot going for him. He was kind of a man of the people. Um, but if you read in the Old Testament, in, in First and Second Samuel, Saul starts to make a whole bunch of mistakes. He starts to do things that God didn't tell him to do. He starts to take credit for things he wasn't supposed to do. He starts to take on priestly roles that God never asked him to take on. Um, and so Saul goofed up somehow. And you're left with this, this thing wondering, like, did God make a mistake with Saul so that he had to fix it with David? Well, no. But here's, I think, you could look at this a, a lot uh, and, and spend some time on it, but in the simplest form is sometimes God favors one person over another, and we don't quite always understand why. Two other examples come up from the Bible. Cain and Abel. Remember that story? They each offer a sacrifice to God. 
God favors the sacrifice of one of them over the other, and it leads to murder. It leads to the first murder, and it leads to the first death of humanity. And it's challenging. It's difficult. Now, if you look at it a little more closely, you realize that Abel's sacrifice was more out of faith, and that's even borne out later on in the New Testament. Another is Esau and Jacob, these two brothers. You know, they're twins. They couldn't be more alike in the sense of they almost were born at the exact same moment. And yet Jacob, who's kind of a conniver and a liar and sort of the messed up one, is, receives this favor more than Esau. And, and it's such a mystery that, you know, even in the Bible it says, you know, at some point God says, I'll, I'll have mercy on whom I'll have mercy. That's kind of the definition of what it means to be God. I can, I can be that arbitrary if I want to, but he's, not, he's really not that arbitrary. I think what's happening with David and Saul is that Saul is the king that the people wanted. He was tall. He was good-looking. He was unassuming. He seemed like a real populist, popular king. He was the king that the people wanted. But you give the people what they want, and it doesn't turn out well. That's just the reality. David, on the other hand, is the king that God wanted. He's the king that nobody suspected. He was in a line with, in fact, he wasn't even there. When the prophet went to pick him out from among his brothers, he was not even there. He's, look at all these beautiful young men. One of them has got to be king for sure. Each one of these is going to be king. And God kept saying, not one of them, not them, not them. Finally, Samuel says, do you have any other brothers? Well, just a little kid, just the youngest He's out watching the sheep. He's not much to talk about. He wasn't important enough for, for him to even be here today. And Samuel says, call for him at once. Bring him here so I can anoint him the king of Israel. And that's that passage that we put on the mirror today for, for in the gift bag. God does not look at people the way other people look. God looks at the heart. And God looked at the heart of David in that moment and found a king, found somebody that he could put his promise into for all these generations. So is it, is it arbitrary? No. It seems that way. I feel bad for Saul. Saul made a lot of mistakes, but God cleared him out of, out of the way so that David could become king and David could enact all these promises that God wanted to make to the world. And it was because David was a man after God's own heart. I don't know how else to put it. Um, there was, and, and I think this is borne out in the Psalms. You can't write the psalms that David wrote unless your heart is not in tune with the Creator. I don't think you could have written those things. So there was some connection that God had with David or that David had with God that was profound and perhaps unique. But I think it's one, it's a connection that God wants to have with each one of us. And we'll get into that later. So here's this beautiful promise that God makes to David, uh, although he reveals it first to the prophet Nathan, that I'm, you don't need to build me a house, a temple, but I'm going, and you already live in a house, a palace, but I'm going to build you a house, which is really your dynasty, and this dynasty is going to reign forever, and I will always be merciful and faithful to your dynasty and to your children, even if they do things wrong, I will not withhold my love from them at all. Doesn't that sound like Jesus? Doesn't that sound like what God wanted to do in Jesus Christ? Now, historically, there's some problems. Again, we run into some problems. Historically, there's some problems. David's dynasty did not last that long at all. It did not last long at all. 
Um, and David started making a bunch of mistakes. He had a wonderful wife named Abigail. Well, he was unfaithful to her with Bathsheba. He had a wife named Michal, who was the daughter of King Saul. They didn't have any children, which is probably good because that would have created some interesting questions about whose descendants they were, David's or Saul's, uh, who was, whose dynasty was actually in effect, Saul's dynasty or David's dynasty. Um, but David, as we know the story, he had this uh, adulterous encounter with Bathsheba, and he murdered Bathsheba's husband Uriah to try to cover it up. What a mess. So it's adultery and murder. It's, it's real Saturday night stuff after 9 p.m. that you watch on TV, and it's just a mess. And um, it's all, it all comes out, and there's punishment. That, that ch- there's a child that comes out of this union. That child dies, and, and David goes into mourning. Bathsheba mourns. And for some reason, uh, they stay married or they get married, and, and they have another child. That child is Solomon who becomes king after David. Solomon is the one that builds, builds the temple for the Lord. So David's dynasty gets off to, let's say, let's say David's dynasty gets off to a bit of a rocky start, okay? Uh, it's kind of a mess that he starts his dynasty with the offspring of a woman that he had such a sort of a messed up and checkered beginning of the relationship with. Isn't that interesting? It's not a dynasty through Abigail. It's not a dynasty through Michal or any of the other wives or concubines he had. So it's already, it's a human, it's a totally human story. Yet God's promise is, this mess that you started, I'm going to bless it. I'm going to be faithful to it, even though you keep messing up. Now, if you really want some fun, uh, gory reading, uh, Game, of, Game of Thrones has nothing on the Bible, okay? It, it, it just re, it, it re, actually it reads like Game of Thrones. I, I suppose the author of Game of Thrones might have read the Bible, because there's murder and slaughter, and you look at David's son Solomon and his attempt to keep power, and some of David's other sons who tried to usurp power. There's a lot of there's a lot of bloodshed. There's a guy hanging from the tr- uh, tree by his long hair, getting hacked to pieces. You know, it's it's a mess. Go home and read it. It's really fu- it's you know it's it's interesting. It's great drama. Um, but several generations later, and David's DNA, so to speak, is nowhere near the throne of Judah. It's nowhere near the throne of Israel. Uh, the, the kingdoms divide. And so there's a northern kingdom that wants nothing to do with Jerusalem and, and the southern kingdom. And they're at war, and they make alliances with different countries. Um, and then they are all taken into exile and there's no identifiable kingship over Israel at all. There's just a bunch of people living as captives in a foreign land. And so you could ask yourself the question, where is this promise going that God made? I'm going to read it again. This is what the Lord, Lord Almighty says. I, the Lord himself will establish a house for you, a dynasty, When your days are over and you rest with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring to succeed you who will come from your own body and I will establish his kingdom. He is the one who will build me a house for my name, probably Solomon, yet could be pointing to Christ. And I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be his father and he will be my son. My love will never be taken away from him as I took it away from Saul. 
Your house and your kingdom will endure forever before me. Your throne will be established forever. It seems like God is talking about a physical family, Talk, but he's not, is he? Because it didn't come true that way. This throne, this house, this dynasty is a spiritual one. It's one that started with David and his faithfulness, and yet it persisted through David's mistakes and Solomon's mistakes, which were many, and the mistakes of many generations that came after them that compounded finally in the exile of God's people, but then their return, and many more mistakes that were made since then and finally culminated in a descendant of David, yes, simply saying yes to an angel who said, I will do as God has chosen for me. I will consent to having the Son of God. And so it's almost as if this promise is always there, holding sway over history, but finally touching down again a thousand years later. It was a thousand years, almost exactly, from this moment to the next that David's, the promise to David about his generations being forever would actually come true. And it comes true in Jesus. In Jesus. And again, it's not a biological thing. Jesus didn't have any children that, that we know of, right? There's no record of that. We're the spiritual children of Abraham. We're the spiritual children of David. And we're the spiritual children of Jesus Christ. This promise that God makes to us is, is through David, through Jesus, is for us. It's to us. Here's how I like to think about it. Um, there were a lot of sort of messy people, messy relationships, messy family dynamics that went on with David. Um, and uh, Clark, Clark Ince came over to our house the other day to drop off a casserole, which was delicious. And uh, he had to step over a bunch of toys and shoes and old newspapers, and he was very gracious and said, that's fine, you know, no problem. I just said, I'm sorry our house is such a mess, but we have three kids, you know. It's just a little untidy in here. So if you come to our house, it's going to be a bit of a mess, all right? Um, my car is a real mess, all right? If you get in my car, the minute you sit down, I'm going to have to try to grab a bunch of wrappers from McDonald's off the seat before you sit on them, okay? And there's going to be children's artwork on the floor where your feet will go, and I'll have to say to you, it's okay to step on them because we have like a thousand of these things, and we don't know what to do with them. So they're floor mats right now. But my car is a mess, and in the back seat are cups and bottles and juice boxes and things like that. And I thought I was going to drive this morning over to Dell's place, so I was going to get ready to sort of clean up my car real quick when I got here this morning, but Pear drove. Thank you, Pear. His car is immaculate, which is great. Uh, we're not in immaculate mode right now. My house is a mess. My car is a mess. And I'm a mess. I'm not just talking about untidiness. I'm a mess. I'm a personal mess, right? Um, I wrote down all the ways that I'm a mess. And I'm such a mess I can't find them right now. Oh, here it is. I have all these ideas and hopes, and they're all vying for space in my brain. They're all vying for bandwidth, and not all of them are winning. There's a jumble up here, okay? It's just kind of messy. I make mistakes. I do things wrong. I say things I shouldn't. I don't say things that I should. I'm not the best husband in the world. I'm not the best father in the world. I'm a mess. What God is saying to us is that 
he would come into your house. He would come into my house. He would come into my house and he would walk over the toys and he would enter in. And he would actually get in my car and he would ride somewhere with me, like the ark going around in the tent. He would go with me and he wouldn't complain about the floor mat being children's art. He wouldn't do that. And he would come into my life and he would look around and he might say, yeah, it's kind of messy in here, but he wouldn't not come in or keep his promises to me because I'm a mess. In fact, he would come in particularly and exactly because I'm a mess. And he would hope that I could clean up my mess only so that I could be more available to him. That's why he would want me to do it. But he'll get into my house, he'll get into my car, he'll get into my life, and he'll start to redeem it. He'll start to keep this promise with it. I want to think forward to Christmas right now. You know, Christmas is a time, I think, when we strive for a little bit of perfection, maybe. You want to have a perfect tree, perfect dinner on the table. You hope that when all the family gets together, the kind of the dynamics won't come out for that hour. You know, maybe afterwards, fine, but for that one hour, maybe we can set aside all the weirdness. No controversial topics like politics at the dinner table over the ham or the roast. Um, But that's not really Christmas. Christmas was a mess. Two young people, homeless, couldn't get a room had to sleep next to animal manure, have a baby in the midst of filth. It's a mess. God enters the mess in the flesh and becomes messy himself so that he can redeem messes like me and like you. That's what Christmas is about. Now, I'm not saying let it all hang out this year, right? You know, just go home and walk around in your pajamas all day long. You could. It's up to you, okay? If you did that, though, Jesus would still come to your house. He would still sit at your table. He would still eat your meal. And that would be the most honest and comfortable thing I think that we could do is to let Jesus in into the midst of who we actually are so that he can start to redeem us and keep his promises to us from the inside out. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for promises, for this stunning promise that you made to David that your love would never be taken away no matter what. Father, we thank you that you make this promise come true in your son Jesus Christ. Amen.